Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for March 29th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, uh, we're going to have a conversation. We are going to talk about things that matter to us, things that interest us, and maybe things that are a bit controversial. But what we're going to do is we're going to go out into the forest of knowledge and pick a bunch of juicy information from the information trees. No matter what those trees are, we're going to make get sure... Lost. Oh, it's it's easy to get lost. You know, you, you, you're going and you're looking for eggs and then you, you, you wind up somewhere else. That there, Yep, sticking with it. Uh, uh-huh. But what we're going to do is we're going to try to make sure that we evaluate all of this information in good faith and, of course, do everything within our meager power to keep ourselves and our audience adequately informed. Yeah, you know, we acknowledge that we don't know everything. Uh, our viewpoints aren't the only one that matters. I mean, I guess this is really a critique of a lot of journalism back in like 2016. But here we are now still trying to do it, <laughs> still trying to not just be hacks um, and get those clicks, which I, I guess we're succeeding at. Um <laughs> Um, but yeah, we, we don't know everything. We are not on the ivory tower. So, uh, we are not the holy ones of takes, but anyway, Hey, Evan. Yeah. Joe, what do you want to talk about this week? I want to talk about an interesting policy that has just been passed by the city of Evanston, Illinois. Many people may know that this is the home to Northwestern university and that's its main claim to fame. They have recently approved reparations. They have become the first city in the United States to approve a municipal plan for reparations. Yeah. So Tell here's us how about it, works. it. Tell us about yeah, it. Yeah, okay. I, I think I will. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope everybody um, did their readings. Yeah, no, we're, you have to know the details, and now we're going to open the line to callers. <laughs> Uh, Evan, I would just like to say I agree with everything that you said. Thank you. Ditto. Anyway. (laughs) So um, there is kind of this $10 million pot of money that's been set aside in Evanston to address racial equity issues. And of that, $400,000 has been specifically earmarked for this reparations package. And important to note is that it's not per se reparations for slavery. That's not really the focus of it. The focus is reparations for housing discrimination. So if you remember our discussion on the color of law, that is what's going to really come into play here. To summarize, you know, African-Americans were barred from homeownership because the FHA would not guarantee mortgages that were on homes sold to black people, and so an entire generation of African Americans missed out on the most lucrative intergenerational wealth building opportunity in the nation's history. So, the city of Evanston has $400,000 that they are giving out in $25,000 block grants to assist African American citizens with home ownership, improvement, and mortgage assistance. Now, priority is going to be given to people who can prove that they are direct descendants of individuals who lived in the city from 1919 through 1969 and suffered this type of housing discrimination. So it's very narrow, it's very targeted, and it's not just sort of this free-for-all. I know that's been one of the most... Uh, prominent criticisms that I've been reading is that the restrictions are too narrow, that it should just be direct cash payments, and that more people should be eligible. But nonetheless, I think that it's pretty impressive that they were able to get anything like this through. They, they passed it within their city council by a vote of eight to one. The one vote against it was uh, a vote for someone who thought that it didn't go far enough. So Mm-hmm. The the idea of reparations was broadly popular within the city, which makes sense. I mean, home of Northwestern, pretty liberal town, and now it will go into effect. So my, my quick take is that it seems like a good idea. It is a specifically targeted way to help people who have been negatively impacted by governmental dis- discrimination in the past. And 
it doesn't do so in a way that I think should alarm people about the scope, you know, $25,000 grants for maybe 16 people within the city, mm-hmm. not really going to break the bank. It's it's all being funded through taxes on marijuana. So, you know, there's not really any budget balancing that has to account for it. So it, it's, it seems like a good program to me. I think the scope is great for a first step. And uh, I'd l- like to know what you think about it, Joe. I think it's I think it's interesting. You know, I was a little bit um, I remember when we talked about color of law, like, you know, when he gave the suggestion of kind of like, what if we, you know, had uh, the government buy up these houses in these suburbs and, you know, sell them back to black couples at like a lower rate? I was a little skeptical of it. Um, it just seemed like creating like winners and losers in the situation where you want to like compensate all the people who have historically lost creating winners Uh, and losers based on who could buy into this new gold rush. Right. Exactly. Like I, I am certain that there would be more people who, um, you know, would qualify for it than would be, you know, able to be, there'd be more the yeah there'd be more people seeking the cheap homes than the cheap homes that the government could get their hands on no that that's a fair assumption yeah, yeah so it would be like uh you know I, I agree something should be done but it just seemed like a kind of uh ham-fisted way to do it that also like a, a way to <laughs> inflame tensions where you know kind of white people would be like oh they're getting this special thing and then not every African-American person would also be able to enjoy that form of reparations. But I can understand, like, if that was like a federal policy or like a state policy, that would be one thing. But as a local government, it it makes sense um, because this is entirely within their scope. And it it just seems like something that at a local level that they could do. I mean, it's limited in scope, but hopefully it targets the people who really had those issues or, you know, really face that discrimination. So, you know, I could see it as a good thing. It would be interesting to see how it comes out. Or Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that it would be interesting if journalists follow this story and gather interviews with families who are helped by this, who are able to buy a home when maybe they couldn't have or able to get assistance in paying for a home so that they're not burdened with so much debt you know uh, i'd be really interested to hear if this ends up creating positive narratives for the recipients as i imagine it would now one of the things that is most often talked about is whether or not this will set a model for other cities to follow whether or not it should the older woman who voted against the bill said that if other cities particularly cities in the south were to pass identical legislation as reparations and call it good enough that she would be mortified so how do you think that this would transpose to a different locality especially one in an area that did historically feature slavery as an institution i mean this is um so i've been listening to uh ooh, let me pull it up here because i want to get the name of it correct um there's an echo uh a Freakonomics episode that they just recently re-aired that was one of my favorites. And it's called uh, Policy Making is Not Science. And the kind of thrust of it is that there's a whole lot of times where researchers will go out and try this, you know, in scientific terms, they call it a treatment, you know, whether they they go and tutor some kids in math or the, you know, they do something with kids in foster care or a lot of it has to do with kids. I, I, that just may be the examples that they used in the episode, but so it works in that small research setting, but then once they try to go implement it wide, then it ends up running into issues and it's not really effective. I could see something like this happening where it turns out that, you know, the city of Evanston, you know, pioneered this program on their own 
they looked at their specific past and you know what was going on and what they specifically could do at this moment to possibly uh you know make up that discrimination that they did as a community but then also leave it that like they didn't say this was it for reparations this is just what we could a way that we could figure out how to do it right now for our own community whereas somebody could take that and you know like they say i mean there are i mean i guess something is better than nothing i would just hope that a municipality like in the south where the discrimination it was of a different kind than the one in evanston and i would hope or you know i'm maybe some people would disagree with that and i could be open to that that you know they maybe were similar but how a community outside of it who has an especially grievous past and kind of just wants to feel like want they want to sw- uh, cl- swipe the ballot clean the slate clean of there's a turn of phrase there yeah um, wipe the slate yeah wipe the slate clean and <laughs> this episode watch joe <laughs> have an issue with a basic phrase um where you know maybe are you that, pitching the show in the middle of the show yeah i am pitching the show in the <laughs> nice. middle of the show. i love it yeah um tune in next week um <laughs> but yeah so it could be seen that a town would use that as just kind of a we did something and then not really address anything else but i'm also somewhat inclined to believe that a town w- that would would want to do this form of reparations and then want it to make it seem like they did something is a short order where I think you would fall. Most cities would either not care to do something if they were that blase about it and B, if somebody, you know, if a community was more engaged about it, they wouldn't let it just be the one thing. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think you bring up a really interesting debate that is kind of had kind of across all policy fields, especially as it relates to legislation. It's the fear that if the first solution you pass isn't perfect, will that lull people into complacency and get them to stop trying to fix underlying problems and i don't know i think maybe from from my taste that's a bit static view of what policy is and what policy should be you know i I would hope that the elected leaders who are responsible for fixing things within our world don't look as at one bill as uh, a cure-all band-aid that you can slap onto a problem and then forget about it. But may- maybe I'm being naive. Maybe that is how it operates. What are, what are your thoughts on this general dynamic, Joe? Well, I mean, it kind of sucks. The more I get into actually looking at the per- practitioners of uh, you know politics and or government, it turns out a lot of people know way less than I would be comfortable them knowing. Um, (laughs) about how all this stuff works. So um, that's always a little bit concerning. It seems like the government's always flying by its pants by a little bit more than we would like to acknowledge. Um, But then also, I I think it has to do with the nature of... Like, it feels like American politics is so much about, at least in this current times, about whether something should or should not be it's not like a binary question like i like take something like i don't know it it often feels like the healthcare debate like oftentimes the way the debate is had is not between two people who both agree that healthcare is a right but we have differing ideas about how to do it it's often between two people who one on one side believe it is a right, but then on the other side believe it isn't. So there isn't this good natured debate about what to do and trying to like improve things. You know, we 
I mean, I don't know if, you know, in like other countries, this is, you know, a similar dynamic, but you would hope that, you know, the debate is we all agree that this is an issue. We have slightly different ideas about it. And then over time, we can kind of tinker with it. And, you know, as one thing works out, we could try the other thing or one, you know, and, and kind of like that. Whereas it's given that here in the United States, that since most things are believe in the problem and don't believe in the problem, once a solution is untenable or isn't working out correctly, that gives credence to the, the uh, party that's saying this isn't an issue and this can't be solved, so we might as well just not try. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe we do have to worry more about that conundrum in an environment of increased polarization. That's that's a good insight. I mean, I, mean, I also think that like this could be something very much with like this reparations program. Like maybe it does some good, but maybe it doesn't do everything that it could claim to be, and. You know, maybe the African-American residents of Evanston don't feel super plussed about it. So, like, maybe it just gets shut down where detractors of it will say, look, they tried to do this there and it didn't even work. Like, why would we even try to do a reparations and not just why would, you know, we shouldn't just do that type of reparations? Uh Uh-huh. So, eh, who knows? Well, uh, time will tell. I think that's kind of the biggest thing about this. Why I was interested in it is because it is truly the first program of its kind. We've never seen any governing body in the United States, to my knowledge, actually step up and say, all right, we're going to attempt to make amends for the historical wrongs that we have perpetrated and the economic impacts that have reverberated through the generations. And so there is still so much unknown about this, but it's an exciting program. I think, you know, if you're someone who believes in the value of reparations, or even if you're not, this is this is going to answer some questions. Like you said, Joe, um, uh, we, we can't necessarily always transplant things from one locality to another, but we will finally have a data point. And that, I think, is just so fascinating. We will have a data Yes, we will have a datum, one datum. Yep, uh, an anecdote, if you will. <laughs> we will have <laughs> anecdotal evidence, which once there's enough anecdotal evidence, you can code it and aggregate it, and that becomes data. Qualitative research. Um, some people like to use the phrase or the phrase uh, anecdata. This would be <laughs> anecdotum. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Oh, Joe, you hard scientist. Oh, me. Yeah, all the hard sciences use anecdotes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we heard that uh, that this crab was, uh, you know, shedding its uh, molting. Gosh I was, darn it. <laughs> I was hurt. I was at the store and Jess told me that she knocked down apples and they fell to the ground. And and she Whoa. and she was looking at it, and she figured it had to be falling at a rate of nine point eight meters per second squared. <laughs> like, and I'm just not one to dispute that. And so, like at the supermarket, there's like this this guy in a lab coat just scribbling it down. Like, oh, good, good, we're closer, we're closer it's, to it, cracking the case. It, yeah, it's like going back to some. Uh, yeah, what if the hard sciences couldn't do the experiments like they did, but they had to do like socially created experiments like the social sciences do? So like, yeah, just some guy in a lab coat, like feverishly looking out at the supermarket every time someone drops an apple on the ground. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> like, oh, there's a case of it happening over there. Let me go. Let me go look at this. Oh. Or a survey where they have, you know, have you ever dropped an apple? How fast do you think it fell? <laughs> oh my gosh, I love this joke. This would be a hit with Econ Twitter. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, send tweet. What if, what if the hard sciences had to collect data like the social sciences did? 
<laughs> this is like a whole sketch idea we're pitching this here. This is a good one. Let me write Someone this steal this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to do any good of it. What do we do? We just make a podcast. So, Joe. Hey, Evan. What do you want to talk about? Oh, what do I want to talk about? I, in, in typical Joe fashion, I want to talk about something that's way bigger than the scope of this podcast and even my knowledge on it. Um, yeah. I want to talk about inflation and economic growth, um, which are uh, topics that have been coming up a lot lately. Uh, so as we've talked about before, uh, Biden passed the uh, $1.9 trillion uh COVID relief package, stimulus package, you know, it had the stimmies, it had the reliefies, you know, it, it had a little bit of something for almost everyone. And there have been most, which is not the angle we're going with this. <laughs> it's rich people. There wasn't a whole lot in there for rich people. I didn't um, get my check. Oh, man. I don't know. Mine was pending like three days after it happened. So um, I am fortunate. But anyway, <laughs> so it um, there has been some talk about uh, fears about inflation coming, which, um, you know, in some ways, a, a good part of the economics community has kind of dismissed. Um, it's really only a big concern right now because of Larry Summers, a former economic advisor to Obama, um, you know, kind of coming out and saying that there are some risks uh, for inflation, which, you know, we're, we're kind of coming into this age where it turns out what we knew about at macroeconomics is kind of less than we thought we did. I mean, there there are some changes in the way our societies work that may have, you know, implications on that. But, ooh, yeah. So what is inflation? Um, the basic idea of inflation is that prices go up for the same good, and it's not because the good got better or um, anything like that. It's just because there was more. Either the dollar became weaker or um, another way that it happens is because um, there is, you know, huge increases in demand and they can charge more prices. Um, there's this, you know, sometimes there's this tension. And I know some people who are like inflation conspiracy theorists where they like look at the price of like college education and like medicine and be like inflation is way more than they say it is. But um, that's just kind of not generally how we calculate in inflation. So how do we calculate inflation? So um, the government, uh, they take something, they call it a basket of goods. I mean, all of this stuff is kind of rooted in like 1930s terminology when, you know, those inflation was a real big issue um, that was being studied at the time. So what, how, you know, they look at the prices of everything that's in the basket. And this can go from like bread to and eggs and groceries to um, some form of housing and um, some form of transportation. Um, it, it's not a fully encompassing idea because in some way there is a difference between things just costing more because you're um, you know, buying a better product or, you know, something like that versus just inflation, which is difficult to say, but on a macro level, those could kind of be the same. But so, so the fear is, is that there is the possibility of high inflation because of the stimulus, giving all this extra money to people, you know, people kind of liken it to, um, or some crazy, well, not crazy people, but we're trying to be in good faith here. Um, some, you know, every once whenever the government gives out money, they, people will start talking about like the Weimar Republic and, and the, you know, Zimbabwe and stuff like that, where these places that experienced what's called hyperinflation, where inflation got so high that they couldn't break, really break the cycle and the money just kept, you know, it was just worthless. You know, you'd, you know, the, at one point they, uh, in Zimbabwe, they, 
printed the hundred trillion dollar note in rock band font, which was fun. <laughs> um, I would love to get my hands on one of those notes, but so, um, and it, and it, it's a real question of why would that happen then? And why would this not happen now? Because we also have very loose monetary policy where um, people can buy, get, you know, in, big institutions can borrow money for basically zero dollars. And the government yeah, explain can the difference between tight and loose monetary policy. OK, OK, OK. So the government, the Federal Reserve lends out money. It's called the lender of last resort. And they have an interest rate on that money. So if a bank runs out of money, they can go and borrow money from the Federal Reserve. And they borrow it at what are the interest rates. You know, when when someone talks about the Fed uh, setting interest rates, that's what they're setting is the, uh, the interest rate on the loans that they give out to either A, the United States, or B, you know, these other institutions and through bonds and all this other kind of stuff. Um, so that's what uh, the interest rates are. A loose monetary policy means that they want to shovel money out the door. They want to park dump trucks in front of places filled with money. And how they do that is by having a low interest rate. I mean, if you could buy a car for basically 0.5% interest rate, you would do that. Um, because you're not paying a whole lot of money in interest rate. But if they want tight monetary policy, then they raise interest rates to whatever it needs to be. I mean, historically, um, interest rates in the United States used to be much higher, where you know even in the 80s or uh, 70s and 80s, at some point it reached like 15%, which today just seems absolutely bonkers. Um, so that's what that is. But anyway... So we have a lot of money flowing out in our economy, but like in the way the Weimar Republic and uh, uh, Zimbabwe, like their governments just very explicitly printed money. But but there's also a difference in kind of how our people spend our money. So um, we know from kind of literature on uh, stimulus that. Um, when you give a dollar to someone who's poor, it does a whole lot more economic stimulation than someone who's rich. Um, because someone who's poor is going to be able to use that dollar much more effectively or, you know, create a greater increase in the quality of their lives than it would for a rich person. But what does that mean? So that means that someone who's poor is able to buy more food, buy more necessities, buy more clothes, you know. All these things that are kind of necessities. But one thing that's interesting is that like so the Weimar Republic, you know, that was, um, you know, that was in between World War One and World War Two in Germany and their whole state capacity was crumbled and people, you know, they had real issues making enough food. I mean, that was one of the things Hitler talked about was having enough space to grow food for the country. Um, and so, you know, if you had a whole bunch of money made available to the people to help them try and buy bread, there was only so much bread that could be bought. So people would outbid each other for bread and this would cause inflation and it would just, so you know, they would have a bread bid. Yeah. Bread bid. Yeah. Bread bid for the bread bin, you know, and, <laughs> but we're at a sufficient level in the United States where if we give the general populace money, um, we're, we're not like, like giving every family or, you know, everyone in this country, essentially, uh, $1,400, the demand for high V plain white bread, isn't going to like skyrocket. Um, it's, it's just not something that's going to happen. Um, whereas, I mean, there will surely be some more demand for bread because some of the lowest wage earners will be able to buy some more. But a lot of the things that we are necessarily, you know, are counted in the inflation basket, 
giving our people extra money is not necessarily going to increase demand enough that people are going to want to like start outbidding each other and there's going to be scarcity for those products um, through other policies in the gut. You know, in the United States, we have an ample supply of food. It's just not always fully distributed correctly, but there's enough um, generally. Mm-hmm. So so that's one reason why inflation won't take off as well. Another thing is that the our economy is has so much more debt, uh, you know, owed at the individual level than they did in the Weimar Republic. Um, credit was, you know, before kind of the 1960s, credit wasn't a whole big thing. Um, it wasn't, you know, something that was readily available to people. And it's something that is pretty readily available to people, whether it be through student loans or housing loans or credit cards or what have you. Most people in the United States owe some money. And when you give people extra money, it just often ends up being the case that they just end up using that money to pay down some of their debts a little bit, um, which creates a better financial statement for them, but ends up not increasing inflation because, again, it's not going out there increasing demand and it's not really lowering the value of the dollar. Um, and then another like third thing that is also interesting on this is that like back in like the seventies, we had a big inflation uh, spike that people worry about. And this is, you know, where kind of the modern stuff comes from. And, you know, part of that was oil prices during the OPEC shock, Um, you know, oil prices, while they are a little bit more today, it's more because there was lack of production because of lack of demand. So, once that ramps back up, you know, it would be, you know, these prices aren't here to stay for forever. But um, it's also just the case that like a whole lot more of our money that we spend goes into either a things that are bought from outside of the country. So the money flows outward kind of like into the, I guess you could say an inflational abyss where (laughs) once it flows out of the economy, it doesn't have the same inflationary uh, pushes as it otherwise would have. But then there's also a whole lot of products that we buy these days that aren't constrained by capacity. Like, what does it cost to make another Netflix subscription? I was thinking um, the same example. Yeah. Like, I mean, the that, marginal cost is functionally zero. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I remember I read there, there was a guy I wanted to, uh, get a job with as an analyst and he had his little book and you know it just kind of explained his life but I remember there was one thing that I gleaned from it and he was like try and make a product that where your income is divorced from time and or and also in this case materials um so like to make another boat, you need to pay all these people to make a boat and you need all the supplies to make a boat. Whereas if you're Netflix, you just kind of turn on the Netflix servers or keep <laughs> them on for forever. And you just you turn can, on the giant Netflix faucet. Yeah. And, and Netflix comes pouring out and they can <laughs> take on like there will never be a point in Netflix um, demand where it causes an inflationary effect um, <laughs> because people are like trying to outbid each other for Netflix subscriptions. They can they can satiate every single person on this earth who wants one. And yeah, do you, before I move on to economic growth, do you have anything you want to add, Evan? No, no. I think this has been wonderfully educational i i uh i got nothing to fight you on okay all right so so next on to economic growth which was also a big portion of this stimulus package was trying to stimulate economic growth democrats really learned that you know (laughs) you know it's stupid but if we look back on the obama years the political struggles and even trump there's a portion of it that is just it's the economy, stupid. Um, the old <laughs> trope from the Bill Clinton years. And 
So what happened in the the Great Recession was, you know, there was the bailout of the auto industry. There was the bailout of the banking industry. And then there was the stimulus, which, God, it you know, it seemed like back in the day, the stimulus was this, you know, monumental thing. And it wasn't even a trillion dollars. Um, and what ended up happening was that that stimulus or it's generally accepted now that that stimulus was not enough to spur the economic growth that needed to happen in the economy to create a really strong, um, you know, recovery. You know, I, I got in a lot of debates at the time about whether the economy was you know rebounding or not. And a lot of people said it wasn't. And I would be like, you know, point to the numbers because, you know, I, you know, thinking Obama was doing his best and all that stuff, you know, you want to claim all that stuff. But, you know, if we look back, it was kind of more sluggish than we would have wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And part of that had to do with um, uh, without enough uh, fiscal sentiment or uh, stimulation, because so currently it seems to be that in the United States, there's enough access to capital that firms, you know, companies, if they want to expand operations they're generally able to do it. Um, it's not an issue where they're fighting to get enough money to make a new factory. That money is kind of readily available. But what not what is not readily available is demand from consumers for the products. Um, and that's what happened in the Great Recession where money was scarce. So people saved their money more or more were more hesitant to spend it. So they hoarded money, which created downward pressures on the economy, which made it harder to bounce back. Um, So and at the time, it seemed like the economic team of the Obama administration was not fighting for something called full employment, which is, you know, trying to push the economy to the point where basically everybody who wants to work is working. Um, that did not happen. You know, we had a lot of years of pretty, I mean, you know, unemployment was coming down, but it wasn't, you know, coming down super fast. And what ended up, ha- and and interest rates were low for this whole time. And, and it all kind of converged where one thing that happened, I'm, I'm trying to, this isn't the most natural transition into this, but one thing that ended up happening was there were fears of inflation. So at the very end of Obama's term, at the very end, um, the Federal Reserve, out of fears of inflation that hadn't happened whatsoever yet, they, you know, uh, the unemployment rate was like 5%. And they were starting to fear that it may, you know, the economy may start, quote, overheating. Um, so they put, tried to pump the brakes a little bit, and they did, which created a slowdown in economic growth, which led to... Uh, the quarters right before Trump's election having slower than normal economic growth, which if you go through some of the academic models of presidential elections through using economic growth as a measure. Um, Tilts it away from the incumbent party. Yep. Just enough. Just barely. But it, it is seen that it was enough to create just enough economic angst to go against the incumbent party. So we got Trump and he kind of, you know, you know, the the best thing he did was, um, you know, nominate Jerome Powell to the Federal Reserve, (laughs) who who likes to uh, watch the discourse on economics, Twitter and all that kind of stuff. And um, uh, so and and funny enough, he doesn't have a Ph.D. in economics. Um, So, oh, what a piece of shit. Well, you know, there's been some discourse <laughs> about it where it's like, you know, since he he isn't wasn't so much marred to the uh, or, you know, in, uh, attached to the economics establishment, he was kind of able to just kind of freewheel it a little bit more, um, <laughs> which has been very successful. Um, I got to hand it to him. And so so here we are now and we're starting to pick up again uh, the economy. And the real goal, the real goal should be what's called full employment, which I said earlier is basically everybody who wants a job to have one, who wants employment to have one. I mean, we acknowledge that 
in an economy, you know, children aren't going to be working, the elderly aren't going to be working, but generally we want, you know, the unemployment rate to be um, around two or, I mean, somewhere low. Um, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a, a concept of frictional unemployment, and this is inevitable. You know, people leave jobs to look for better jobs. They get temporarily laid off. But if we're in a full employment context, those people can find jobs very quickly. So about generally one or two percentage points of unemployment is inevitable. But anything above that is more of a polished choice. Right. Right. So like in the past year, I probably contributed to unemployment because I was frictionally unemployed for a little bit. Um, just because you were if, just changing yeah, jobs. And yeah. I was just changing jobs. Yeah. 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 Um, so, but you really want to prevent pe- you know, you don't want people to be long-term unemployed, but what hey. happens? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what happens when you reach a stage of full employment, when everybody who's working, who wants a job is, is that, Finally, labor becomes scarce. So in every other context, labor is somewhat pl- plentiful um, where, you know, if you um, if someone doesn't like the job that they are at, they can leave. And the employer has, you know, a, an idea that they'll have a pretty decent time being, you know, relatively easily find someone to fill their position that doesn't happen in every position out there, but that's just the kind of general idea, you know, before you reach full employment is that there are more people out there who could go and get something. And there are just some people out there who are just kind of sitting idly on the sidelines who would be very willing to come and take something if it opened up. Mm-hmm. So what happens in full employment is that everyone who wants a job has a job. And there isn't this bench of people out there trying, you know, still just trying to get into it. Like, you know, I remember, you know, during the Great Recession, you know, even a couple of years after it, you know, you would get stories of like, I don't know, like a spirit Halloween staffing up and and they would get a thousand applications for three positions or something like that. And it would be wild, you know, there's a great line in Parasite which I know is South Korean, not American, but I think it speaks to the same global issue where, you know, the, the family in Parasite, they're struggling to make ends meet. And the dad remarks, gosh, even a even a security job position attracts 100 college graduates to apply. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so when there is a higher supply of labor than there is a demand for labor, that means that the price of it's going to, you know, stay low. Um and this is, you know, a, a competing theory for why wage growth has not been as much is because we haven't orientated our economy towards full employment for a really long time. I mean, the real last time that there was really orientated towards it was in the 70s when, uh, the, you know, there was some talk of Nixon trying to push the Federal Reserve to keep monetary policy as loose as possible to try and make it so that unemployment was as low as possible. And they say it overheated and it caused the hyperinflation. It's a really complex time that we don't really know truly everything. But before that, full employment had been a goal of the U.S. government and it had been something it strived for. And because of those kind of frictional reasons, um, an economy has... It, not every economy has the same uh, level of unemployment where it's considered at full employment, um, just kind of because of those frictional things. Like I could imagine in the past, you know, uh, uh, the gov- you know the the country would be at full employment with a like four or five percent unemployment rate because it just took longer to match people to jobs and they had to look a little bit longer. They just couldn't go on Indeed. And imply around. Mm-hmm. So, and basically, and and we saw the, and the, the hope with full employment is that finally through that, people, workers will be able to earn better wages through the market instead of, you know, other means pushing them up. And this would end up helping a lot of people get higher wages, which 
we haven't gotten in a real long time in this country. And this would be because there is a greater demand for labor than there is supply. And, you know, right before the pandemic, we were starting to see that in the, you know, in 2019, wages had actually started to go up. Um, it was it was creeping up slowly, but it was much faster than it had been. Not where we wanted, you know, something like 1%. But, you know, it was something more than it had been. And, you know, really right before the recession, there were more jobs available than there were people out there willing to fill them. So we are starting to see the effects right before the pandemic hit. And the goal is to try and get back to there where we're teetering on the edge of the economy overheating, but just keeping it at full employment um, as long as possible to try and get the greatest increases of wages for people, which people like. So that that's the general spiel. Yeah, the wage angle is what I find really interesting here. I, I did some reading this week about the inability of wages to keep up with productivity. Until about 1973, workers' wages rose pretty consistently with worker productivity but then in about 73 that snapped and i think that joe's right that the governmental policy turning away from full employment is partially responsible the paper that i read also talks about a couple of other factors that go into it as well including the minimum wage not keeping up with rising cost of living as well as the decline in worker power more generally due to the decline in unionization and other legal changes that have hurt the power of workers, but it stands to reason that if we are able to move closer to full employment, that, like Joe's saying, the the labor becomes scarce, and now there are several jobs available to me, you know, let's say my name is Joe Q. Public, and so if a job wants to have a worker fill that spot, they can either make the conditions better of the job or they can raise wages. So, you know, if there's 80 jobs out there where I can go work just some hourly position, maybe I don't want to work my shitty backbreaking labor job. So if the employer of the labor worker wants to keep going and keep employing people, they will be forced to raise wages. And I think that that could be a an effective way to kind of circumvent a lot of other policy choices that could have more negative consequences or unpredictable consequences when we're trying to make things better for lower and middle class workers. And not that that's the end all be all of all of our public policy, but I, I see a real benefit to attempting to go this way to raise wages. Yeah. So when there is scarcity, generally the economy will respond by innovation. So like going back to the oil shock, I, I had mentioned that um, back in the 70s, OPEC, uh, the uh, you know whatever of oil producing companies, I don't know. Um, you know, pretty much Saudi Arabia decided that oil was going to be at a certain price and it was at a certain price and it was very expensive um, to American people and the American oil supply was very dependent on foreign oil at the time. So what ended up happening was before then, um, uh, a lot of Americans drove these very gas guzzling cars because it was, um, you know, gas was relatively cheap and people wanted you know, they selected towards technologies that made more horsepower and bigger cars and all that kind of stuff. But then once that became too expensive, then we started to see the first push in the United States towards more fuel economic cars um, where, you know, uh, you could go further on a gallon of gas. And that was an innovation that took place in scarcity. Right now, because we haven't had full employment for so long, there's this general theory that so over the past something like 20 or 30 years, worker productivity growth has generally been slower than it has been in the past or had been in the you know past. And part of the reason is, is that 
compared to the economy as a whole, labor is still relatively cheap and plentiful. So innovations that would otherwise have taken place in a, an environment of scarce labor end up not happening because they could still just pay somebody to do it. Um, so like, I mean, it, there are some places where labor is so expensive that you see these things like a McDonald's where you just go up to a kiosk and punch in your order. Um, you know, that's a labor saving device. Um that you know out there and creates a more productive per person economy um you know i remember hearing you know way long ago that it was like it's a similar thing where um some guy who was in charge of road constructions like out in i don't know some southern state southwestern state and was like he uh he ran road constructions and he hadn't bought you know like the big machines to do it he still hired a bunch of laborers and it was basically undocumented immigrants laborers and it was like well i could buy the machine but it's cheaper to just hire a whole bunch of aliens to come and do this work for us and the same principle applies to the legal economy you know um where if if things are done if it's just cheaper to do things with a human then it will be done with a human. But once the cost of the human labor becomes too high, then firms will oftentimes look for these innovations that they can use to reduce the amount of labor that they need to have. And that person can then be free to go do a job that is more productive, thus bringing up the general productivity of the society. Yeah, so uh, another kind of counterpoint that I want to make um, that comes up in the paper that I had read is that what, what Joe is describing is absolutely true in certain circumstances, but there's another aspect to raising wages and especially raising the minimum wage that sometimes takes effect within certain industries. So there's some industries that are rather unpleasant to work in or low status or demanding and so just at face value they're not very attractive to workers who are seeking employment and in a case where perhaps there's a monopsony in the industry and there's no real competition over the laborers there's no incentive for the individual firms to raise wages However, the wage that's offered may not be attractive enough to actually generate the maximal amount of employment within that industry or within that firm. And so what happens sometimes is that raising the minimum wage actually makes the job more attractive and firms are able to hire the amount of people that they want to hire. They're able to find people for all of the opening open positions that they have. And so there are times where raising the minimum wage actually creates employment opportunities instead of pricing human labor out of the market. Yeah, it, because econ economies work are, are way more efficient than we like to think. Um, it's not always just kind of the price. There are non-monetary things that are baked into an economy that we don't even know about um, or can tell. So like one industry that I, I has been very interesting through this pandemic is the furniture industry. Um, there has been a much higher demand for furniture than in the past. And there has been much or there has been lowered production capacity due to the coronavirus, um, you know, and, you know, affecting manufacturing of all kinds. So if, you know, if you were to take an econ 102 class on microeconomics, you would you would say, OK, so the firm is able to produce fewer products, but uh, the demand is greater than ever for those products that would mean the price would increase and you know the the firm would sell an equilibrium amount of furniture that's what you know you would that's what you would take on an econ 102 test mm -hmm. um, but what has happened in the furniture industry is that instead of increasing the price 
monetarily to the consumer, they've increased the costs to the consumer by making it that there's just a long wait period to get your furniture. Um, a, a sort of rationing without rationing. So they didn't increase the prices of their furniture um, and and nobody created like fast track furniture where the prices are higher, but you get it on demand. It just ended up being that you were paying the same prices, but it ended up costing more to consumers because they weren't like, uh, you know, uh, kind of metaphysical cost because they weren't getting it as soon as they would have liked. Yeah, you paid in delay instead of paying extra out of your pocketbook. Yeah. So what ends up happening with some of those industries that Evan talked about was that while the price of labor was artificially low, that just meant that that industry had lower than normal, uh, lower than optimal output which kind of just meant a general rationing of those goods where there wasn't like, (laughs) for whatever reason, there wasn't like a great shuffle up to things and prices are a little bit stickier than people like to think. They tend to stay around. So if there's like, I don't know, like let's say one of those jobs was picking asparagus, you know, and the asparagus farmer is only going to pay the minimum wage, seven twenty-five an hour, um, because you know the asparagus market is tough, and you know uh, you can only sell it for so much. And then there just ends up being, you know, there is asparagus out there, but you know, and it's for a lower price. But then there just isn't as much asparagus for everybody. Whereas um, if you raise the minimum, and, and also in that. So, like there isn't enough asparagus for anybody, but nobody could imagine or be, would be willing to pay more for asparagus. Um, but it ends up being that if you force them to end up paying more money, then they pay more money. More people are attracted. There is greater supply of asparagus and you end up paying a little bit more for it. But then everybody has to pay a little bit more for it. And nobody's like cutting out and you know being the bottom rate you know, mm-hmm. race to the bottom asparagus vendor. Yeah. So it's economies are interesting. There's a lot going on. Um, so but, I've, I've heard about that shift in the furniture industry, but I don't know why. Have you heard why this has been the decision? So I imagine that there in this country there is huge well i would imagine in most countries there's huge backlash to um companies when they seem to be doing something opportunistically you know taking advantage of a situation and i imagine the furniture companies decided that it would be seen as that they were trying to take advantage during a really tough time to make more money instead of creating a more efficient, you know, uh, market for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I would imagine it also has to do with the, um, the leveling of the market, the, the symmetry of information that we have on the furniture market um, (laughs) that is generally available. So like anybody can go and look at furniture prices online. Um, And, you know, maybe if this were in the past where there was just, you know, the local furniture store in town or in a bigger town where, you know, things weren't like staked on it, then maybe there would be one, you know, a few companies in town where they would sell things at a higher price and you would get it immediately to solve the scarcity problem. But since so much of it is done online and then also because of the conditions of the coronavirus that most of those sales were done online that it just kind of no i don't think any furniture company wanted to be the first one out there and draw the ire of the public of trying to take advantage of a seen as being taken advantage of a situation when it's really just good economics and giving the people who are willing to pay for it what they want so just basically Impact calculus thought that the uh, the goodwill lost due to the delays 
would be less than the goodwill lost to the optics of raising prices. Yeah, they. I mean, I, I would guess that they would probably be better able to explain to the consumer that, yeah, the coronavirus is screwing up production, so we aren't able to get this to you as soon as possible. Instead of being like, we will let you buy this at a much higher rate, but you'll get it now. And that also, and that strategy would also require a shift in business tactics. Whereas the, you know, just long waits thing is just kind of, you know, based on the same status quo of the old business plan, just kind of elongated. Mm -hmm. So it's complicated, but regardless, higher wages are good for people. Greater economic productivity and efficiency is good for people. Um, So it should be the uh, goal of the American government to push for full employment, uh, which will better make the make people's lives better in many ways uh, better than other economic goals would be. So, yeah, that's me wrapping up (laughs) in a nice little bow. Um, Anyway. So uh, we hope that you enjoyed the show. If you have anything you want to tell us, uh, reach out to us at podcast at adequatelyinformed.com or just reach out to either one of us individually. You know us. And um, (laughs) we'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music as always. But anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.